Welcome to the Artist Rights Watch podcast. I'm your host, Nick Patel, a songwriter, a publisher, and a student of the music industry. Alongside me, I have David Lowry and Chris Castle. David Lowry is a platinum-selling songwriter and performer for bands Cracker and Capper van Beethoven. He currently lectures to music business students at the University of Georgia and is an ongoing artist rights activist. Chris Castle is a music lawyer in Austin, Texas, where he represents artists and music tech companies and works on public policy issues for artist rights, and his content information is in the show notes. So thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Artist Rights Watch. Today we're talking about frozen mechanicals. But also today, we are talking to Crispin Hunt. So Crispin Hunt is from the Average Academy, and he has been brilliant in this conversation, so please do not miss it. You will not regret it. But to basically clarify on what we mean by frozen mechanicals, we're talking about keeping the mechanical royalty rate the same and not accounting for inflation. So we've seen this in the past when the royalty rate was two cents. It took 72 years before that changed. And now, with it being 9.1 cents, it's been like that since the early 2000s. And increasing the royalty rate in the case of inflation doesn't actually increase the effectiveness of a high royalty, but rather just maintains buyer power. So songwriters are basically just getting paid what they should be getting paid and are not actually seeing an increase in income if the royalty rate was to be increased. And there are multiple implications and consequences of this, which we'll talk about in the conversation But to give you one example, I'll talk about the control composition clause. And so the control composition clause, if you don't know what that is, is basically when an artist decides a record label, they might have this clause in their contract, which basically states that if the artist is also a songwriter for the songs that they release, they are due less mechanical royalty rates than the normal statutory rate. So in the US, that could be 75% of the statutory rate. So if you relate this to what I was saying, earlier about frozen mechanicals, you're getting paid less than what you're already getting paid, which what you're already getting paid is not enough due to inflation. So your buyer power is decreased even more. And so that's what causes this grand problem that we're facing today. So let's get into the conversation with me, David Lowry, Chris Hunt, and Chris Castle. It's an amazing conversation. Please stay tuned for all of it. It's a very needed conversation as well. So I hope you guys enjoy it, and I will catch you guys next time on Honest Rights Watch. Right, so thank you so much for tuning in to the Honest Rights Watch. It's another episode, episode five. And today we actually have Crispin Hunt from the Irish Academy. So Crispin Hunt is a songwriter and a campaigner serving as the chair of the Irish Academy. Uh, Chris Hunt is the song singer from Sheffield-based Britpop band Long Pigs in 1993. And after Long Pigs split up in 2000, Crispin went into politics working as parliamentary researcher and campaign coordinator for six years. Um, he's also a mostly platinum selling songwriter producer, having worked with the likes of Lana Del Rey, Ellie Golding and Florence and the Machine. In 2016, he was appointed chair as BASCA, which is now known as Irish Academy. As the chair of the Irish Academy, he campaigns internationally advocating for musicians' rights and is elected director of PRS for Music. He sits on the UK Intellectual Property Office Copyright Advisory Panel and is the former director and co-CEO of the Featured Artists Coalition. So, Crispin, thank you so much for coming on to Artist Rights Watch. How are you doing these days? 
I'm I'm really good. Thanks for that incredibly long intro. I've got to, got to sh trim down my bio. Um, no, I'm really good. I'm really good. It's been a, it's been an extraordinarily weird year for the whole world, but um, but we've been sort of. But it's a. It I think it's an exciting. I think it's highlighted an exciting watershed for music, where where I think the whole the whole world there's never been as many conversations going on about music as there is at the moment and i think it's high time that an industry that got away without proper scrutiny and accountability is getting scrutinized and, and held to account certainly and we also have chris castle and david lowry as usual how are you gents doing good good how are you doing doing great how about you david i'm fine i was telling you the story that um <clears throat> About an hour ago, I realized that my uh, MacBook had, my old MacBook had frozen, and I knew something was wrong with it, so I bought another one, but I hadn't actually taken it out of the package. So I'm here to testify that you can go from zero to all logged into everything <laughs> on a, a MacBook Pro in 20 minutes. So I've managed to do it. So yeah, I, I'm fine. Other than that, I almost had a heart attack this morning, though, because of that. Well, um, so let's um, let's talk a little bit about this whole thing here. Um, this is a situation where a page of history is worth a volume of logic, at least in America, right? Um, but to go to the fundamentals, remember that um, if you haven't encountered this before, that every sound recording has two copyrights, the sound recording and the song that is being recorded. Uh, the song in, in America is um, almost always subject to a statutory compulsory license. So the songwriter doesn't really have a choice, uh, except in very limited circumstances, when uh, to keep somebody from recording the song or to keep the recordings of the song from being released commercially. And the mechanical royalty deals with mechanical reproduction to the song, remembering that the original mechanical royalty dealt with piano rolls. So it was literally a mechanical reproduction of the song. Um, what we take it to mean now is really just manufactured, sort of distributed and reproduced copies of the sound recording and the, therefore the song. So um, that rate is established by the government and has been established by the government through a few different ways. Um, currently, it uh, takes the form of the Copyright Royalty Board, they call it, which um, includes the Copyright Royalty Judges. And just so we're clear, these are not judges in the normal sense or what lawyers would call an Article Three judge. Uh, these are at basically administrative law judges who sit on an administrative law panel that happens to be located in the legislative branch as opposed to the executive branch. So most of the time we think of, you know, administrative law problems arising in executive branch agencies like the EPA or the Civil Rights Division or something of that nature, right? Uh, this is not that. This is part of the copyright office, which a fluke of his is in the legislative branch under the Library of Congress, which makes absolutely no sense. So don't try to understand it through logic. 
It just is that way. So when you have, when, when they decided that they were gonna have these compulsory licenses uh, in the uh, 1909 version of the Copyright Act, which is about as far back as we have to go, uh, they established a compulsory license for songs. And that license rate was set at two cents per copy in 1909. It stayed at two cents per copy until 1978, which is 68, 69 years, right? And gee, I wonder how that happened, right? So um, bearing in mind that nobody else in the country had wage and price controls set on them uh, at a fixed rate for anything like that period of time. We went through two world wars, one pandemic and a great depression and songwriters still got paid the same in 1978 that they did in 1909. Then in the 1976 revision of the Copyright Act, those royalty rates were put on a, on a gradually increasing path. And so it, the rates increased over time uh, from two cents to 9.1 cents for physical. And then as downloads came along, downloads were treated the same as physical, mostly because they're treated as royalty based price sales. And uh, the download company like iTunes pays a wholesale price to the record company and then the record company pays the mechanical royalty on what's called the pass-through license. Uh, that's an important fact to remember. We're going to come back to that. So um, now we have a situation where once we hit that 9.1 cents, which uh, happened in 2006, uh, the rate was frozen in 2006 because these rate settings go in five-year tranches. Uh, or as we say, the quinquennial um, tranche uh, examination uh, at whatever government entity is setting the rate at the time. And, and it has been the Copyright Royalty Board for quite a while now. So um, what we have currently is we have a rate proceeding before the Copyright Royalty Board, which is called in the shorthand Phono Records 4. Um, and that is uh, phono records is what you call in copyright speak a uh, sound recording. Uh, so it's the fourth time they've set these rates. So that, that goes back 20 years because they're five years at a time. Um, and there lies the rub because what's being proposed now is that that 9.1 cent rate be continued at 9.1 cents again going forward until 2027 at another for another in other words for another five years as part of phono record four um, various arguments that we'll get into about why but um, it, it all comes down to the same thing which is the main reason why is because the record companies don't want to pay more <laughs> it's really quite simple you know if, if they can get away without paying it they will right it's the 10 second mba you know buy low sell high you know don't don't pay more than you have to so um we'll we'll get into more about why that is and how that is being administered um in the podcast but that's sort of sets the table for how we get here 
we're seeing a rate which is we we suffered through a rate which was two cents for 69 years and we're now suffering through a rate which is 9.1 cents and what will end up being 20 years that's how you got to the to the two cent rate for 70 years because trust me nobody came in in 1909 and said hey you know what let's just freeze that rate for 70 years sound good to you you know, nobody did that, right? It just kind of crept along. And that's what we're seeing now is another one of those creeping um, mechanical royalty freezes. Uh, it has recently stirred up quite a bit of controversy. And um, we've got, we'll put some of the press on it in the show notes, but um, you'll find it in Complete Music Update, Digital Music News, Billboard, you know, if people are starting to pay attention and there's all kinds of letters being written to the copyright royalty board, which, which we'll get into. So that's the history. And uh, like I said, a page of history is worth a volume of logic because nobody would ever have figured it out that way if they, if they didn't understand, you know, the path. So Crispin, let me interject here so we can kind of, as we go deeper, talk about how this necessarily affects the UK. Could we first start with talking about how are mechanical royalties treated in the UK? I mean, in the UK, you don't have this statutory rate of 9.1 cents that is issued by the US federal government. How are these administered? You have a company like HFA. What's kind of the process in the UK at the moment? Well, we do. We have we have um, something called the MCPS, which is a, a really good um, organization, but it's very much under the same Kosh, the UK is um, is is very much, uh, you know, the 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 we know that kind of at least seventy five percent of the UK music market is controlled by um, you know American HQs, and um, so so our the bosses of our record industry are very much. Um, answerable to the bosses of their American record industry and especially with Brexit coming in this poses a something which I think is a real concern um, we know that UK US trade deals are you know trying to bring in um, American practices which I don't think are as good as British practices but I think exactly because of the CRB um, we have a much arguably freer market than um, than the US um, we don't have statutory rates um, but we do, however, have copyright tribunals. And um, so some years ago, 15, 15 or so years ago, the, the BPI, which is the equivalent of our RIAA, um, um, took PRS, um, the Songwriters Collecting Society, to, uh, to a tribunal. And they came to an agreement which was roughly the same rate as, as, as the 9.1. It ended up at 8 point something or other. And... Um, even though it seemed to be an independent decision, I am quite sure that um, that the nine point one rate was bench a benchmark for the for the British court to come to that agreement. And but despite that, we've done quite well. You know, our publishers have done better than the Americans have because the American publishers can't in arguing up um, the rate. So online, um, you know, the rate has improved uh, on downloads and on physical. It's still pretty shoddy, but um, online the rate has improved to kind of between somewhere between twelve and fifteen percent at most, and twelve percent um, and lower at least. So, um, but but I 
you know, I, I think the whole thing ping-pongs as pop music ping-pongs between, you know, across the Atlantic, the entire, um, the, the decisions ping-pong. So I don't think it's any mistake that the, um, that the, 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 the CRB um, has given a, a progressive increase in the digital rate to 15% um, that is now being appealed by the big major music platforms or some of them. Um, um, I don't think it's any, any accident in the same way as it was no accident that the UK rate was benchmarked on, on the 9.1 rate that the CRB set. I don't think it's any accident that, that the digital rates are being benchmarked by where we are in the UK. So the entire thing seems to be sort of holding itself, holding itself back. Um, and, and I'm very nervous that in the UK-US trade deals, I'm less nervous now that we've got Biden than, than Trump, um, but I'm very nervous that an awful lot, and we're seeing an awful lot of kind of, you know, in all due respect to America, but for the sake of the songwriter, the, the, you know, the copyright framework isn't as robust as it is in the UK. Um, and um, um, for exactly these reasons, and, and I, uh, I'm very nervous that, uh, you know, fair use will, will, will move into the British jurisdiction. I'm very nervous that, um, you know, work for hire, which we don't have. We have, we have in Europe very, very strong and essential and critical rights for both songwriters and performers um, in, in broadcast and in public performance, which um, America is lagging behind on and, and needs to catch up. But, um, but I think it's a pretty critical time. As I said, we're, we're at a kind of watershed where, we're, where, where, the, where the music industry is still controlled and trying to behave in a 20th century model, um, which will inhibit the, the potential for streaming. And we need it to be um, re-evaluated. We need to work out where the value is driven and the value is undoubtedly driven by the song. And I fear that this, I understand, I'll go into it in a bit. I understand some of the thinking behind freezing this rate, but I fear it's, um, it's misdirected. I fear that it's the music industry keeps on creating the specter of a worst case scenario, which is that the rate could go down. But those spectres are actually used just to incarcerate everyone within the status quo, which benefits um, which which benefits those that um, that in the twentieth century arguably deserved to be able to take eighty percent because they were a manufacturing and distribution industry. But in the twenty first century, that's no longer the case. And I think um, you know, I think those sort of ancient practices are being ossified by an extinct realm into a, into what should be an exciting new paradigm. That I've rambled there, but but you get the gist. So, Kristen, you know, one of the things you hear over here is that, um, and this this has come up in these in these boards uh, opinions before. You, you hear that the control compositions clause actually makes the the nominal mechanical royalty rate lower. Therefore, we should all live with the control compositions clause. Um, <clears throat> this, of course, is flawed reasoning, but just so everybody understands, is there a control compositions clause concept outside the United States in your knowledge? Not as far as I know. I mean, this is, it's pretty much, I think it used to be, it... David? So the physical 
mechanical royalty rate and the download mechanical royalty rate, unlike the streaming mechanical, is paid by the record labels, right? And oftentimes, the record labels have performers that are also the songwriters, right? And so what the record company generally did was to say, well, look, we're already giving you money as a performer, so we want to break on the royalties that we're paying you as a songwriter songwriter right and so most performers would agree to these things that if they also were a songwriter that they would take a reduced rate from their record company and typically what that was was three quarters of the federal statutory rate right and this little uh maneuver is called the controlled composition clause and what we're getting at here is the fact that a lot of the mechanical royalties are already paid at a reduced rate under the controlled composition clause, right? And and so this this is kind of you know a problem anyway. So I'll, I'll hand it back to you. Yeah, and the t- the technical aspects of the controlled compositions clause um, are um, first it applies to recording artists who also write songs. Um, in the first instance. It also applies to the total, what I would call the total mechanical royalty load, payable royalties on any one record. So um, if you're a writer, it affects you as a, if you're an artist writer, it affects you. But it also affects you if you're an artist who doesn't write songs, because that says the, the, the control compositions clause is a maximum aggregate mechanical royalty uh, clause, right? And so the record company says, this is the most we're going to pay. So if you have outside writers who are not subject to your contract and they charge us full rate, let's say, and your rate is three quarter rate, then that delta of 25% has to come from somewhere. <laughs> and the place it's going to come from is your record royalties, right? So they create a financial incentive for the artist to go out and try to get the outside writers to take the three quarter rate. Um, There's also a lot of other bells and whistles, all of which are bad. Uh, And I have a whole blog post that explains all this, which we'll put in the show notes, but just for purposes of understanding what's going on is the people who are imposing this artificial restriction are now going around saying that the artificial restriction sets the market price so the market price for everyone should come down to the level of the artificial restriction. And I note, if, if I may interject there, I note also that, um, you know, BMG, who are a German uh, virtual major label, um, they're probably the fourth biggest major music group in the world, have, have recently and progressively said that they will not apply a controlled composition clause to music. So to, you know, in the hope the, the fear, I think, is that unless they freeze, the, the logic behind freezing this rate is that unless they agree a freeze of it for, for the next five years or whatever it is, um, then the control composition clause, then, then they will look at the control composition clause, they will say, actually, the song is, is worth a good deal less than 9.1% because it's worth three quarters of 9.1% and the rate could go down if they appealed it. Um, that that may be the argument, but but it seems to me that if the more 
if if the progress, if the if the direction of travel is into getting rid of the control control composition clause, and I've fallen foul of this. The first time I heard about it, I remember I wrote a um, you know a track that was on um, that was track number thirteen or something on a multi million selling record and i didn't receive any money for it because it sort of was at the end of the the 10 tracks that they agreed to pay out of so um so or received a considerably less value than i should have done which um which was the first time that i realized how unfair it was um but but if the more progressive major music groups are agreeing that this is a, a an an outdated anachronistic um, application of of a, a, an outdated anachronistic um, uh, contractual agreement between between the creator and the and the exploiter, um, then um, then I I'm not sure how realistic it is that would you know would would the people arguing the other way be able to feasibly convince a court that. Um, that the rate should go down when all the evidence is saying that the value of the song is 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 much much higher, and and, and I know at first you know I'm I'm very aware that there's been very little consultation of this um, worldwide. I've I've spoken to a number of publishers. Um, I've spoken to a number of independent publishers, and all of them go, we haven't heard of this. There hasn't been any consultation. There certainly has been consultation with American songwriter groups, but there certainly hasn't been um, consultation with. European songwriter groups, and this could effectively, especially for, for British songwriters whose work um, is peppered all over the Billboard Top 100, um, this this um, could have significant impact. Um, I, I understand that actually we are, you know, that on the surface it looks like we're just dealing with physical records and physical downloads will die. We know they'll die. You're a climate change denier if you if you if you argue that they won't. Um, just like broadcast will die. You're a you're a climate change denier if you think broadcast won't won't disappear and all migrate into streaming. Um, but um, you know, physical records, vinyl has taken over CDs. Vinyl is now kind of six percent of the market whereas cds are four percent so cds are, have gone off a cliff um but i heard one you know major record label friend of mine refer to vinyl as a merchandising item so really if we are if we are setting the benchmark for the value of the song and all of the evidence um there was a very interesting new uh new report and bit of research done by bjorn Orveus and media um which, which, you know, which clearly the song is the major driver in the streaming economy. The song is the thing that people, there was another very good article by Media where he was saying that, um, you know, a song on TikTok will be shared many billions of times, but the actual artist will only get 50,000 likes. It is clearly the, the, the composition that is becoming the sovereign driver of value and, and, this strikes me as a as a perfect opportunity to to actually argue for for recognition of that there we are in a new paradigm, and um, um, but it's it's terrible shame that 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 the that the songwriting community and the publishing community isn't prepared to fight for that and go out and find the evidence um, to support. Uh, uh, an actual commensurate share of the value of music. 
Yeah, that's that's really that's a great summary. You actually kind of stepped on some of this, already covered some of the stuff I was going to say about this, which, um, but, but let me let me, which is that, um, uh, yes, we we realize that physical and digital downloads are a very small part of the market overall. However, if you do look down into this corner of the market. There's, and I think especially for Indian niche artists, where there is a premium on the physical products, you know, in, in maybe a collectible way or whatever like that, you've actually seen physical product prices, especially for vinyl, rise dramatically. So the fact that record labels and uh, publishers are agreeing. Uh, in the U.S., supposedly, uh, supposedly agreeing, at least the major ones are agreeing, to freeze the rate goes against what's really happening here. What's 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 happening here is that the physical products are actually getting much, uh, they're much more expensive. People are willing to pay for it, but yet the songwriter's revenue becomes a smaller and smaller amount of that. Let me give you an example here. So I I advise the Sparkle Horse Estate. And um, the record label, actually, uh, I guess Capital uh, Parlophone, Capital Parlophone, Capital in the United States, licensed a box set. Um, and uh, the gross, um, at least at wholesale, uh, as far as I could tell, appeared to be on this box set because it was so expensive. It was like 200 something dollars. It was very nice. It was well worth the money. But the gross for the labels appeared to be over $200,000. The actual mechanicals paid on the physical product was less than $5,000 from what I can tell, right? And I have access to everything, but that looks like what we got. So that is a very small percentage of what songwriters are historically paid based on the gross revenues at wholesale, right? And I believe in the UK, you have some sort of calculation that would push that up higher. Do you, do you, is there a uh, retail price figure there, Crispin? I, I think it differs for, um, per contract. That's the trouble. There isn't, there isn't a kind of a, an agreed nationwide, um, in, in my understanding, but, but I actually, I, I don't know enough about this to comment on it um, intelligently, well, I'm afraid. Okay. So, so what I'm saying is that the by freezing that rate in physical and downloads, and and then having the physical, uh, you know, wholesale and and you know list prices to the consumer just go through the roof, right? Uh, songwriters are getting much less of a share of the work in that format. And now look, yes, I understand overall to a big label like Universal or Capital, this, you know, the, the physical product isn't really a big deal for them. But niche labels and indie labels, this is really important. Like I would expect that that Sparkle Horse box set, as far as gross revenues generated by those sound recordings, that's this is probably like, I don't know, like, 300% of what they did the previous year, right? So, so in these niche cases, it's important. Um, but, but, and then finally, uh, I would say about this, 
is um, there's sort of this notion out there. People say, well, we want to fix this mechanical rate because we're afraid that if this goes before the copyright royalty board, we'll end up with a lower rate. Okay. So who's going to argue for a lower rate at that copyright royalty board, right? Is, are, are the services? No, the digital services won't because they don't pay this royalty, right? And then, <coughs> pardon me. So you would have to believe that the record labels are going to go before the copyright royalty board in the United States and risk a PR nightmare of lowering their own performers' royalties rates, right? They're going to pick that fight right now. It just seems completely implausible. And frankly, the last thing I say about this is I think I really don't understand why the major record labels themselves, I know they want to save money, but they're really not saving very much money. And I mean, basically, you know, record labels have had a good couple of years because they're not Spotify. They're not the man. They're not the ones ripping off the artists. They're the ones paying the artists. Why would they want to walk into sort of the Spotify role by suddenly like, we're, we're gonna reduce songwriters royalties in the middle of a pandemic after most of us haven't worked for 15 months. Yeah, that would be good. <laughs> that would be yeah, I, I, you know, I agree. It would be a very, very bad look for them. And, but I mean, there's a, there, there's a big campaign that we've been running, which has been very successful in, in the UK um, called Fixed Streaming. And that, that goes alongside, holds hands with a, a, a campaign called Broken Record, which in the, in the process of, um, of COVID has been um, very loud indeed. Um, and, and I know that there are, that there are, um, equivalent campaigns going on in the states, and this is what I mean. There's a there's a huge global conversation going on at the moment, uh, scrutinising and holding um, and holding the music industry to, to account. Um, and the music industry should be able to withstand robust scrutiny. Really, they are the guardians of our of our copyrights and of our work. Um, and and you know, as as those guardians, they should be able to. Um, withstand that kind of scrutiny but um actually in the in the uk and in, in europe the focus david you were talking about how the focus or the the bogeyman is is spotify but in uh, you know in in the uk it's it's the focus has moved away from the platforms um and gone on to the actual um onto the major music groups it's really the major music groups that are recognized as you know there was something that i um, came across the other day and the, the, the you know universal music groups salaries and stuff have been published ahead of their IPO in Amsterdam later on this year and the CEO I believe of uh, universal music records in the UK gets paid a salary um, standard salary of 12 million dollars a year whereas the average wage of a CEO of a FTSE 100 CEO um, and for most FTSE 100 companies have have profit margins way larger 
than the major record labels is 3.2 million. So there is a huge discrepancy of, of how much is being um, is how how much is being extracted by the major labels at the moment. And I, and I don't know whether you know we we in in the UK feel that we need to rebalance that imbalance, but um, before we go after the the platforms because um, because I mean the platforms are sort of going after each other you know um, Spotify is suing Apple and um, for, for the App Store and one could easily cut and paste Spotify's argument that the App Store you know they're saying we don't believe an App Store should be able, should be able to charge us 30 percent all it's doing is providing a platform um, for other people's work <clears throat> um, Spotify look in the mirror um you know and uh, so <laughs> really you can just cut uh, and then and um uh, and in the same way epic games is doing the same thing in in the states and you know there, there is an argument that those that the platforms are, are already eating at each other's value and that that those arguments can be um can be you know allowed to play out and then um and then the same that their same legal positions put back to them at a later date but we really have to sort out the fact that the music industry is can no longer justify taking a manufacturing and distribution cut because they're no longer doing you know they're a glorified marketing industry and and you can't as a marketing industry you can't you can't you can't justify an 80 percent cut or or 12 million dollar 12 million dollar a year salary um so I, I think it's interesting the, the way that it's playing out between the US and the, and the UK. I mean, both, both sort of sets of campaigns are, are very complementary, but it's, but it's a global conversation. And, um, and it's a global conversation because we're just at that point. It hasn't been kicked off because of COVID. It hasn't been, um, you know, it's not, it's not because there's a bunch of unhappy, unsuccessful musicians that are complaining about being unsuccessful. In the UK, we just got... You know, Paul McCartney and Kate Bush and Led Zeppelin and Andy Lennox and 150 other of the greatest songwriters of all time to write to the prime minister saying, sort this out. So I think it's I think it's 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 come to a head just because the head is there. You know, we've come we've arrived at the head. Right. Well, that that but that if if the labels are under pressure in Europe and EU and UK, then that that would further my argument. What can they, what do they possibly have to gain by continuing to freeze the mechanical royalty rate? If people are make, you know, I mean, this is just as it just seems crazy, but what 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 instead they will do is just invite more scrutiny, which makes me wonder who's really driving this proposed settlement in the United States. It doesn't really make sense from a record label perspective. It does not make sense from a music publisher's perspective, and it does not make sense from a songwriter's perspective. How is this happening? Is this just like one of those cases where you have, uh, I think the term for it is like elite panic, where essentially you have the people sort of running this process have completely lost touch with the bigger picture and they're suddenly going into the settlement that makes no sense for anybody involved in it right i, th I think you're totally right i think it was your your 
tweet that you put out earlier, which is if it's, um, you know, if the, is it a willing buyer, willing seller, free market? If the willing buyer and the willing seller are the same person is, is, is absolutely great. And um, sort of my version of that is that, um, you know, when, uh, you know, an awful lot of people turn around to me and say, oh, Crispin, you just don't understand how the music industry works. And I say, no, you just don't understand that it doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and actually, let me say this. Chris actually in a conversation said the willing seller, willing buyer quote. So I had to ask him, can I tweet that out? He's the one who actually said that. And this was actually a while back. So I had to ask him if I could tweet that out. Because if there was a time for this, I mean, really, eventually what you have got to in the United States, and like I said, everybody involved in this process in Washington, D.C., doesn't realize how untethered from reality they've become. And, I'm, you know, this is not not a MAGA swamp watch thing or something like that. They just literally are really far from reality because what you have in this proceeding is you have basically the major record labels on one side of the table the major publishers on the other side of the table, but the major publishers are owned by the major record labels. And then there's this one songwriter group I don't wanna get into right now, Um, but all all but this one songwriter group has been removed from the proceedings in a kind of bizarre fashion. So, I mean, it's kind of looking like one of these Soviet, show trials, not trying to insult the Soviets, but uh, because this is actually even more comical than that, right? They would have done it better, actually. Uh, Exactly. (laughs) At least somebody would have got sent off to a gulag. Yeah, yeah. Don't forget, Putin's gotten reelected a bunch, you know, I mean, um, but but yeah, your point, David, it's, it's, it's like, there's a, um, you know, there's sort of like, um, it, it feels like there's an antitrust case in here somewhere. We just haven't stumbled onto it yet, you know? Because it, it, what it feels like to me is they're tying records and songs. And, and I, I can't speak to the, the full on antitrust implications of that, but there are some. Well, and they they've right. also they have they may have defenses, but there are some. They've right? also apparently admitted that there's some side agreement between the major publishers and the record labels. They've admitted yeah. in the filings right. that there's a side agreement, right? So it's, I think they're gonna wish they had. Yeah, well, that. so so it, it it makes a mockery of the complete of the copyright royalty board process because it's like Oh, we're going to agree to something in front of these judges because we've already agreed to this other thing on the side outside of the court. We won't tell you what it is, right? I mean, this is clearly not what was envisioned by the statute when they set up the Copyright Loyalty Board, that you would make agreements outside of the process that would then make things change within the process, right? Right. I just imagine if Exxon, imagine if it was Exxon doing this with whatever agency oversees Exxon drilling, let's say, you know, 
would would people just be going, oh, okay, you know, or would they think would they think maybe there's something wrong? Well, they, I, I mean, I, I think so, but the music business has kind of romanticized its dastardliness for, you know, it's all the whole kind of sex, drugs and rock and roll thing. But, you know, but lots of people, when I put that to, to, to people and try to suggest, um, sorry, my daughter phoned me right in the middle of that. But, um, you know, when I, people, people always say, oh, but hasn't the music business always been this way? Hasn't it always been unfair? And um, and the same thing is, you know, children always worked in factories until they didn't. You know, we re we we really, you know, it, music story is not its fate. We 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 shouldn't just sort of, you know, run by what's always happened historically, because this is one industry where, you know, where um, you know, working conditions haven't improved for for the people who create the value in in a hundred years in a lot of cases. And and the CRB rate is a very good perfect example of that and i think we're we're now at that i think that you know competition needs to re be reset it needs to suddenly look because competition is being artfully avoided competition law is, is being made toothless by the fact that oligopolies are working in in tandem in order to maintain their oligopolies and music is now kind of an oligopoly on top of an oligopoly on top of an oligopoly and um and we know that the, the big platforms have, or we suspect, I've you know, seen some kind of documentation that seems to prove that the big platforms have earmarked, Facebook gets social media and, and you know, Apple gets gadgets and, and Google gets search and Amazon gets markets, um, et cetera. We know that, 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 there, that there appears to be some kind of agreement of their, their fields. And, um, and in the same way, so you've got those oligopolies or quadrigopolies or whatever it would be, including Amazon, um, on top of the streaming oligopoly of, um, of Amazon, Spotify and, and Apple, on top of a major music group oligopoly of Warner, Sony and, and Universal. And um, we really need to, um, someone the other day tweeted at me, oh, copyright lends itself to oligopolies. Is, is that really how how any free marketeer intends the market to work? Uh, you know, is that what 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 a good market is about? And we need to intervene in this. I mean, you know, the free marketeers in the UK and the US always cite Adam Smith, but in Adam Smith's book five, which was called something to do with sovereignty and the Commonwealth. Um, Adam Smith actually argues very, very heavily and goes into great lengths about how markets need proper regulatory oversight. And, and, and really, we're at that point again. Uh, but I think, I think there's a lot of interesting moves. I think in the UK, the Copyrights and Markets Authority has just taken Sony to, um, not to court, but to hand for buying AWOL, which is the largest... Uh, uh, independent supposedly artist without a label has now been bought by a label and um, you know so I think I think these things are I think the competition authorities are beginning to realize they need to get some teeth and they need to kind of look it's not just monopolies but there are there are different groups of monopolies working in tandem and and on the surface value of it when you read this settlement it looks a little like that I agree. I think that, well, I, and uh, what I would 
you know, okay, so let's maybe talk about some possible solutions aside from just, um, you know, let's come up with a new process that isn't the copyright royalty board for setting these rates if we're going to have statutory licenses, or let's just get rid of them. And um, that would, you know, that would be kind of my idea. I know I'm always a little bit radical, but but closer to actual antitrust regulation and competition regulation, why why do we allow the major labels to own the publishers, right? That that seems really to be the problem here, that they should not be allowed to own the publishers because it creates these fake, you know, it creates this essentially a fake market, right? And then, you know, the the other thing about that is I, I wonder if the shareholders of these companies, so I'll give you the other argument. Um, I wonder if the shareholders perhaps are actually really harmed by this because what if Universal Music Group was split off from Universal Music? I mean, look at what, what you know, hypnosis is valued at. Are, are they actually hurting their own shareholders by, uh, you know, essentially suppressing the revenues to songwriters here, right? When is when, uh, somebody I think is going to get wise to this at some point? Well, I, I, I agree. And I, and, I, and I don't necessarily, you know, I think the kind of whole willing buy, willing seller market was well summed up by uh, 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 David Nash. Is his name David Nash from Crosby, Stills and Nash? David, Am I speaking about the right person? David Crosby. Sorry? David Crosby. David Crosby, sorry, sorry, yeah, I'm sorry, David Crosby, who I'm a great fan of, but um, David Crosby, you know, tweeted about about selling his his song rights, saying none of us would be selling it, none of us, if we could see any proper value from this. So, um, so you could argue that, um, but at the same time, um, you know, you could argue that that the value of the song has been kind of asset stripped, according to this, and then is is being bought up, um, you know, by um, you know, by deliberately so universal music publishing, then reducing the asset value of, of the song and then buying Bob Dylan's catalogue um, is looks looks very strange. Um, and um, if Bob Dylan felt the same as David Crosby feels, um, but but at the same time, I, I'm very interested by these large music funds really as a songwriter because I think. And I've, I, I'm friendly with Matt McCurriardis, who's doing an incredibly good job and, and arguing very prominently for the value of the song, saying that this is we are entering a new new paradigm and um, and that the song should have a far greater value. And, um, you know, Merck's plan is to exactly use the, the leverage of his investors in the city in order to drive the value up. And I think David's point about how surely once you start to get the city investing in in the value of the song in song futures as it were um then then those same investors who invest in the big record labels will start to intervene and say well wait a second my investment should be seeing four or five times the return that it's seeing at the moment but um but the value of my investment is being capped or suppressed. So I think we're, we're in a very interesting, you know, everything is at play here. And, uh, and it's because everything's at play that I think the large music labels 
are panicking and and also trying to cash out paying themselves warner music group paid you know paid their top five executives a share bonus worth 600 million dollars out of an annual profit of 900 million dollars which is um you know pretty bizarre but um and and vivendi are are selling universal music group precisely because i think they see the writings on the wall but um but of course they're trying to fight for everything that they can at the moment and this is this is yet another example of 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 them throwing around the power that they've got in order to in the same way as spotify's you know market value market you know spotify isn't about profit it's about its value absolutely and, um, yeah. so, sorry i'm, I'm ram- rambling here but it's been the end of a long end of a long day well the the um i think this is this is an interesting point right which is a lot of these guys are in such a big hurry to get to the public market but guess what you get when you get to the public market, you know, <laughs> you get shareholders, you know, and um, strange things happen with shareholders. But I think it's, I think it's, um, you know, one of the other things, David, you, you, you brought up this, the reference to the side deal in this proposed settlement. I just want to get Kristen's reaction to this. When I read, when I read their motion, right, because this is the way it works is, um, there's a voluntary negotiation period on the label side about um, downloads and physical. And then there's um, a, uh, a voluntary negotiation period on the streaming side. So when the voluntary negotiation period expired, um, they announced that they, or when it was getting close, they announced that they had reached a settlement. And then they um, on the 18th of May, they, they were supposed to file, I, as I read it, and I think as the CRB expected it, they were going to file a motion. They didn't file a motion. They filed another notice that they had reached a settlement. Then when they filed their motion, which just happened to be the same day the press started getting about this, <laughs> um, they um, had reference, there, there's references in their motion to a settlement that they had reached about the rates, but the settlement agreement is not attached. And there's this reference to this side deal, which is also not attached. So I've seen this move before. I don't know if this is what they're doing, but I've seen a move like this before that looks like this when you look at it from the outside, where there's another transaction going on where real cash money is changing hands in return for what I would call the rube rate, right? And so they, they pay a bunch of money, they get a low rate, and then they turn around to the people who they didn't pay the bunch of money to and say, hey, this is your rate. Aren't you glad it didn't go down, right? And no one's the wiser because you can't see the agreement so you don't know what was paid, if anything, right? But it sure looks that way. And, it all, and remember, when they start talking about waiving late fees and things like that, the last time this happened that I'm aware of, <clears throat> and, and, and particularly as it relates to the Pentagon match that could be laying around from all the years of pass-through licensing on iTunes, right? That was hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, these numbers could be quite large. And so, Crispin, I just, I don't know if, if you've given this any thought, but it, it, how, what would be your... Um, I mean, could, do you have a, 
a, a way to express a point of view about this, or is this something that concerns you, or you just leave it well, regular? Yeah, un- undoubtedly, undoubtedly, it concerns me that there's being kind of side deals done that we don't know what the nature of it it is because as i said there has to be kind of transparency and there and and i suspect across the industry or we know across the industry that there there are large amounts of kind of side deals which which eventually end up being at the expense of the people who create the music um but um but i you know i i do sort of have you know, I'm not as cynical about the um, the MN, NMPA. It's one of those difficult acronyms, as 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 perhaps you know it might seem. I I do believe that they are trying to um, improve the value of the song, but I also think that for some reason, because the song has been so devalued, and this is another arguably another example of it. Um, you know, the whole publishing sector is scrabbling around for for scraps. You know, they, they on the one hand, there's a sort of totally illogical argument. They say, oh, you know, we've got we've got nearly twice the rate in Europe that we used to have on, on downloads. You know, we've gone up from eight percent to 12 percent in, in Europe. But but that 12 percent um, is, is worth 500 times less than it was when it was when it was 12 percent. You need you need a billion you know, streams on Spotify free to earn the same as two million downloads on on iTunes um, as a songwriter. So, so the whole narrative is being completely wonky, and and people aren't looking at the bigger picture, and they are they're just you know they're in a state of panic. The whole songwriting and publishing sector is in a in a state of panic because we know that eventually. Um, you know, uh, I think the PRS just published figures saying that um, you know broadcast revenue is is you know on a kind of four or five percent decline every year. We know that um, we are going to you know it's on a downward trajectory, and everyone is everyone is panicking and quite understandably, I think, sort of fighting between each other to um, to get secure any scrap that they possibly can. But but it's bizarre at the same time because in the bigger picture. What what the the songwriting community produces is the thing that is creating the most value. So there is there needs to be a kind of reset in thinking, and people need to start going. Wait a second, we you know the song is sovereign here. We we should we need to we need to fight for and argue that, and and argue. I mean the whole you know there's a there's a big argument. The, the BPI in the UK will argue that. You know, they are the sole providers of the music economy because they will say they say they invest two hundred and fifty million dollars in you know A and R, which is in investment in new music every year. What they what they fail to mention is that that two hundred and fifty million dollars includes every single royalty to every single British artist in pop history. Um, um, but what what doesn't get mentioned conspicuously is that the Music Publishers Association, the the equivalent of the MNPA in the UK, invests two hundred and thirty million dollars a year in A and R. But eighty percent of that, really, because music publishing has reformed, you know, eighty p in the in the publishing pound goes back. To British creators, whereas only 
roughly 20p and the label side goes back to creators. So, you know, I think people are kind of caught in a kind of Stockholm syndrome. They're unable to see the wood from the trees. And, and the, you know, the songwriting community needs to sort of stand up and go, wait a second, we're, we're the boss now. And if, you know, and if, if, if the future, you know, that argument about, oh, the whole of the future of the British music industry will collapse unless the BPI are allowed to take their um, lion's share, is nonsense because we could be going to the publishers and getting getting investment the same kind of investment, um, but on not on you know Wonga payday loan um, schemes. You could be getting it on on a, on a perfectly decent you know eighty twenty invest eighty twenty interest rate rather than a twenty eighty. Well, and the more rate. the more you, you you see investment flow in from the city right into into the song side. I think the less the the we spend money on AR argument really starts the whole water because there's money at the front end, there's money at the back end, and and the songwriters, you know, should be anyway, getting the lion's share of that money, whereas it doesn't work that way on the sound recording side. But also, you know, if the if the if the record labels are investing 250 million pounds a year in the UK. And justifying 55% of streaming revenue because of their 250 million pounds. If the publishers are managing to invest 230 million on 12%, surely the the artists and the performers can can be due another. You know, we can the, the, the labels can go down to kind of 20% and still invest 250 million pounds a year, rather than paying themselves 100 million pounds. Well, it does seem like the art, the performers, and particularly the non-featured performers, but but performers and the songwriters are kind of, in a way, um, in the same boat, right? Different reasons, but but kind of in the same boat, and and they have the same the same sort of problems. In the UK, we've you know the Ivers Academy, which is the trade body for songwriters and composers, has formed a a, a very powerful alliance with the Musicians Union, and traditionally. Um, you know, because the music industry divides and rules all of its creative people and, and musicians aren't supposed to be on the same side as songwriters, aren't supposed to be on the same side as artists, aren't supposed to be on the same side as producers. Um, um, but actually, it's been demonstrably effective, um, you know, working with the musicians because exa- for exactly that reason, we are on, we are all on exactly the same side. And, and you know, what used to be a conflict of interest has now become a complete combination of interests because... Um, and the people who make the music, it needs a reset. The people who make the music should be the major beneficiaries of, of, of the exploitation. Of that. And it's a common cause. Right. Uh, so, well, why don't we just um, pause for a moment here and uh, think about what's coming. Uh, it's, it seems like what, what should be happening here uh, is that there's, I think, international writers and American writers have an interest in getting the CRB process to be more, uh, not just transparent, but effective, right? And I mean, some of the ideas that have been thrown out uh, would be to have kind of a, an ombudsman type figure or a, a, a permanent uh, slot for, for, song, for a songwriter participant in the CRB proceedings, something like that, where there's, there's a, there's a, um, 
an electoral process that doesn't involve, you know, the usual suspects that, that involves, you know, a some sort of nominating and, and confirmation process. Or, and maybe there's a couple, maybe there's one for international, one for, for America. I mean, you don't want it to be too large, but, uh, or it becomes unwieldy, but it, it doesn't seem like the proper thing is to have to pay, you know, millions of dollars in legal fees in order to be able to um, keep your rate from being frozen, <laughs> right? That doesn't seem like a fair exchange to me. Do you have thoughts about that or, or do you have advice about how it's handled in, in the UK? Well, yes. I mean, we, we at the same time are calling for some kind of music ombudsman because there needs to be, you know, it's a, there needs to be oversight to check that the music, the music market functions properly. And even from a kind of, from, a, from both a left-wing and a right-wing perspective, that, that is a very good case. And um, so we're, we're calling for some, we're calling for standardised data, which is also another huge issue, but I'm sure you've just covered that. Um, but, um, uh, you know, really, for, for whatever reason, the, the, the scrutiny that, um, that the industry is coming over will lead to change. You know, I, I'm with the NMPA um, in that really we should be getting rid of the CRB altogether. You know, there needs to be a proper free market. And and the UK trying to, all of our campaigns to try and make sure that it happens, that the UK recognises the true value driven by the song um, and the market is free, um, will undoubtedly be inhibited by um, by what goes on in America. It's, you know, pop music has ping-ponged from, you know, Elvis to the Beatles and then back and forth um, across the Atlantic the entire time. And luckily for both of our countries, we're the sort of most successful pop music manufacturers and, and, and inventors in the, in, in the world. But, um, but I think that, I think there really is, there really is time for, um, for some kind of change. And it's, uh, uh, and I think music is going to be an enormous value driver going forward you know and it, uh, ironically for us you know the internet may have completely decimated our livelihoods but it also allows us to organize and and i think what we're seeing is the fruits of that now you know i'm sitting here talking to you to you in completely different um different um different parts of the world and so so the kind of transparency the the opacity of the music industry which the music industry has has built itself on um it you can't do it anymore. You can't, you can't sort of, you know, that it's inexcusable. You can't not have Shazam in the corner of every bar. You can't not have, uh, we just can't. It's, it's inexcusable and it will get called out because, because technology has actually so surpassed where the, the, the culture within the industry that, um, that the industry is, is falling over itself. And um, and I think it it's it's you know it's falling at the moment, and um, and it'll be interesting to see which bits of it pick itself up after it's fallen, but um, but that's where we are, and the value is also absolutely huge. Funnily enough, in in the UK there was a really good a, a really good test case, which came from COVID, talking and looking for the the benefits of COVID, but in lockdown um, last summer in 2020, um, the UK 
came out of lockdown and they opened pubs again for a very short while before we went back into it. And in Scotland, um, because it has a different uh, legislation, they decided not to allow music to play in pubs because as if the volume of the music's on too, then people have to shout a little bit more and that spreads the disease more. Whereas in, in, in England, they did allow music. And British pubs had a 30% better taking because of music than Scottish pubs did. So, so we've been able to kind of quantify the, the sort of social capital of music to the, um, to the, entire, um, to the entire economy. And it, and it vastly improves productivity. And, you know, it's it, the, the English government, we need to undo, get the English government to understand because the English government is being very nationalistic and jingoistic at the moment. We get the need to get the English government to realise that actually... I'm very, very personally, I'm very against Brexit, but Brexit provides Britain with an opportunity to be the best place in the world to be a music creator. And, uh, and that's, that's a, um, yeah, something I that we... I hadn't thought about that, but it, yeah, you're right. We could. And because we're so, you know, the British musicians are the, you know, we're the second biggest exporter of music in the world, but currently all the value of our music is being exported to, you know, Japan, a, a French sewage company, and um, <laughs> and uh, and uh, you know a Russian a Russian oligarch, albeit a well, with a tributary yeah. to China. Yeah. Well, yeah. interesting, interesting. Well, um, Nick, I don't know if you have any more, but I, I think we're uh, we're kind of hard up on it. But this has been great. This has been a great conversation. Um, depends, actually. Chris, we, me and you actually chatted about the whole fixed penny increases in CPI indexing. And I know in your article, you kind of mentioned how you could kind of integrate both of them to maybe help with this kind of deflation of the rate. Do you want to touch on like how that can sort of pose as some sort of solution down the line? Well, let me, let me just quickly uh, go over that. So uh, at one, the, the, the Congress has employed a couple of different techniques to increase, always increase uh, the statutory mechanical royalty rate in America, right? One of them was just to increase it, right? Just, just staged increases by year. Uh, and another way was to increase it based on the consumer price index. Now, I'm not a big fan of increasing, uh, of what they call indexing, which is where you cause an increase in a, in a government, usually it's in a government entitlement payment um, that increases based on uh, the consumer price index. And for example, one of the problems with that is the consumer price index includes some things, but not other things. And one of the things it does not include is the cost of rent, <laughs> right? So I kind of like to get the food and the rent, you know, in there and, and, um, and, and have that be a, a, a relevant point. So, you know, some kind of index, right? Uh, I, I wouldn't go for consumer price index myself, but, but you could come up with an index. There's plenty of them. I mean, you know, the government, the Department of Labor has all kinds of, you know, indexes that they put together. So one solution I, I think might be uh, to have uh, a graduated increase that's a greater of sort of combine those two concepts where you have a greater of the um, the um, a penny rate increase a fixed penny rate increase over a five-year period 
or the uh, consumer price index. So at least that way, you know, if, if, the, if the penny rate increase is less than the consumer price index, or let's say the index, uh, then you know you'll at least won't be going backwards in terms of your buying power. And, uh, and, and if the penny rate is greater, then you're actually getting value, an increase in value for, for the song, right? So I, I think there's, you know, I'm open to suggestion about how to solve this, but those are two, given that, you know, you, you, you're talking about bureaucrats here, right? Those are two different techniques that they have used in the past to great effect that were supported by the Congress and in some cases originated in the Congress. Because remember, ultimately the Congress has jurisdiction over the copyright royalty board. I mean, if the Congress decides we don't need a copyright royalty board anymore, they can just make it go away, right? Uh, on the other hand, I mean, that would be extreme, but, but they could do that. On the other hand, they could, they could reach down and say, you know, I don't like the way this is set up. I don't like the fact that, that there's, it costs too much money, you know, for people to participate. So we're going to have an ombudsman. I mean, they could do that too, right? So that's, that's sort of the, the way I would see getting out of this corner that would at least, I mean, we're not going to get rid of the Copyright Royalty Board overnight. Maybe we don't even want to get rid of the Copyright Board Right. But um, but we we have to we have to reach some sort of uh, conclusion about this step, you know, in terms of what are we going to do for the next five years? So what I had suggested was let's do this. Let's have this greater formula. Agree to that. And, and good news, we just have to agree it with the record companies. <laughs> and if they can agree to freeze the rate, they can agree to raise the rate. Right. And if they're so convinced that these configurations are going away. At some point in the next five years, one of these configurations is probably going to go to zero, right? So, you know, it's 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 less of a, of a net payment for them uh, than it would be if, uh, you know, they had to fight it out in court. So um, that's something that I think people could consider as a short-term fix. And, and, you know, the labels would just have to agree it, you know, if they... And they'll probably not, and, you know, they'll probably fight it. But um, on the other hand, if they were asked nicely, you know, and, and, and they understood that they were in for like a real slog, if they, if they didn't, um, then maybe we could get somewhere. I think, I think that's, a, that's a, a very good point. I mean, undoubtedly, we as, as a kind of group of creators need to get our evidence together. We need to have these arguments. We need to create economic arguments. And that's that's an extremely good economic argument. There's another um, another one that I've been trying to get off the ground, um, you know, to demonstrate that the value of the song is a, is a major driver. And and there was a, a someone that, that I think either you or you or David put me onto called Joel Waldfogel, who is a, an amazing amazing economist in um, Minnesota University, yeah. uh, I think. Um, but mm, yeah, yeah, somewhere out there. And he, um, yeah. Yeah. you know, he's got he did a did a kind of preliminary study of um, the data that he's got on the Billboard Top 100 for the last. Um, you know, 20 years or something. And he analyzed that to work out what, who was the greater driver of hits or chart success between the songwriter and the artist. And, and it turns out that the songwriter was an, a fractionally greater 
driver, but it was at least half and half. So, you know, we, we need to evidence, we need to evidence that we need to have proper studies and to, and to make this case for, for the value of the song going up. And fundamentally, the, you know, it, it doesn't hold that much water on, on this argument, because this argument is around physical and download, although the download arguably has exactly the same argument. But, but the costs of, for the labels of physical production, as, as you say, are, you know, of digital production, are completely minuscule now. They, you know, they've gone up, the, you know, record labels have gone up, even in the sort of, hey, glory, last days of Rome um, bit of, of CDs, um, when everyone was, was throwing money around the place. Um, you know, they were on a kind of six to nine percent profit margin. Now they're on a kind of 20 to 40 percent profit margin on some acts. And, 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 you know, it just does not make economic sense any longer. And it doesn't make economic, economic sense for the, for the songwriters, because the songwriters, yes, there are secondary values to be made for artists. They can go out and the value of live has gone up. But that's arguably because people are charging 10 times more for a live ticket than they used to because they're not making any music, any money from, um, from recordings any longer. But, but all, of, you know, all of these things need to be seen in the round and, and kind of quantified in the round, but it's very difficult to get the industry to kind of look outside of its ironically named Stockholm syndrome, um, being uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, um, and and kind of really reevaluate where the value is driven in music. And if they if they were to start to reevaluate where the where the future value of music lies they will find that it's not where it lay in the past so um i i just a quick anecdote on this and then i, I think we should probably wind down but um there uh, years ago i was sitting with a, a young person who was probably about 12 and uh i said so uh, who's your favorite band right and they said oh i love so-and-so right i said really what's your favorite album well, it's this, and it was the name of a song. I said, no, 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 that's a song. What's your favorite album? Well, it's this. I said, no, that's, that's a song, <laughs> right? That's one track. I mean, and they didn't know. They had never listened to the album. And I said, so what you're really saying to me here is what you like is the song. <laughs> you really like that song. Do you know who wrote it? And they're like, what? Well, the artist. I, well, you don't know that. I mean, maybe they did, but you don't know who the songwriter is. And so, you know, to me, that was the perfect crystallization of how generations now experience music, right? They experience the track. I mean, thanks to Steve Jobs, you know, we blew up the album and it became a track, you know, a singles industry. and what, but but what people remember is the song. They don't always have the credits. I mean, probably at an increasing rate now, you'll see songwriter credits online and you'll see some of that kind of label copy information online, but you didn't for a long time. And, and those people weren't getting paid for a long time or they weren't getting paid very well. So um, I think, you know, that, that part is changing. I think that's changing, but what's not changing is the way people, you know, 
experience music and, and they experience music as the song. And that needs, you know, it's changed radically. There used to be a time when you'd have, you know, staff songwriters or, or you'd have guys who would, uh, you know, uh, you know, they, they, they'd come in the old days, uh, Jerry Kushnick told this story about, he, he was trying to cast songs for Ben Vereen, right? Which is a very specific case, right? It's not, not just for everyone. And one publisher just sent over, you know, a box of CDs and tapes and crap, you know, and, and another publisher said, we'd like to buy two tickets to Pippin. And then they came in with three songs and they got two cuts out of the three, right? I mean, that doesn't happen anymore, right? No. It just doesn't no. happen anymore. But I think, I think if it were allowed to, we could be going back to a kind of, era where the songwriter is is the is the recognized as being the creative force i mean you know it was not that long ago kind of at the dawn of well you know in the 50s and 60s where where people would where you know radio djs would say here's the new song by holland dozier holland sung by who and, or they would say, here's the new song by Bacharach and David, sung by an artist called Lulu, you know, and, uh, and I think kind of, you know, it's, it can flip again, you know, where, where um, you know, I know that artists are more, you know, I've been an artist uh, and artists are, are great and it was, and it was, you know, sexy and fun being an artist, but, um, but, uh, but really I've done my best work as a songwriter and, um, and, and, uh, and I think there needs to be a kind of re-education that should naturally follow from this, uh, the thing that you describe, which is a kind of change of direction where it is, you know, as, as Mark Mulligan from Media describes it, streaming is a song economy. It's, it's no longer an artist or an album-based stuff. And I love albums. Album, album is a much more interesting art form. It's like a, it's like a novel in comparison to a single's you know, article in a, in a, in a comic, but, uh, but, um, but that's where we are. And, and, you know, the industry is swimming against the stream in trying to restrict that going where it's going, you know, and we really are at a kind of watershed, which um, the definition of a watershed is where a stream turns into a river. So, so, so hopefully that's where, that's where, um, that's, you know, what's happening to the industry at the moment. That's why there is so much noise. That's why we're having these conversations. That's why the world is having these conversations. And that's why music suddenly become under the microscope. And because, you know, we all, we all curse the internet for making, I think it was my friend Neil Turkovitz who said, um, you know, the, uh, the, a copy left will argue that the that, that, that copyright creates artificial scarcity. And his point was that, you know, the internet has actually created artificial ubiquity. But because music is so ubiquitous now, um, it's everywhere. It's in, you know, it's in the sound of birdsong in the toilets of motorway service stations. It's, 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 it surrounds us and it adds so much value to our life that we've got to kind of make sure that value goes to the place it should, which is now it, the, with the creators. The creators are the people who, who create that value. And, um, and we've just got to make the world realise that that's the way it should be. And that's what's that's to me what's intriguing about your alliance with the musicians you need is that it really is the creators, you know, joining forces and not being set at each other, you know. Well, that's 
that's it yeah i mean it's been it's been in the business of divide and rule the whole music industry and that's how it's kind of suppressed organization and as i said actually we've now got the internet which curse it but um but we can meet and, and talk and and share information you can say what what do you mean you're getting 17 percent for that and i'm only getting 15 percent for that yeah we do the artists, same job artists, uh, songwriters never talk to each other see this is the thing this is the thing it doesn't happen but uh anyway these guys are uh they're, I think they're in for a rough ride with their frozen mechanical. I don't think anything about this that we've been talking about says, yeah, you know, the real way to advance the cause is to freeze the mechanicals. Right? That's not really fine. Well, listen, Nick, um, I think we'll leave it there. Um, and I, we've gone quite a ways here and hopefully we still have some, some people listening or watching, but um, been great. And I've uh, been glad to have you, Crispin. Yeah, Crispin, thank you so much for being the guest. Oh, it's been a, it's been an utter pleasure, and thank you, Nick, so much. And it's so great to see you face to face, and well, not quite face to face. And Chris, sooner or later, I I need to buy you lots of beer. <laughs> Crispin, I hope in the near future we get to be acquainted in person. But yeah. it was brilliant to to have you on and to see you face to face virtually. I'm 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 so grateful, Nick, and um, we have to we have to carry on because I think we're 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 at a turning point, and um, it just needs turning, and it needs to be us who turn it. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Artist Rights Watch. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can add us on Twitter at Artist Rights or on Facebook at Artist Rights Watch, or you can check out our website artistrightswatch.com. If you missed any of that, you can check our show notes. It has all that information and our contact information. Also, if you specifically like today's topic, there will also be extra information in the show notes as well where you can do extra research and learn more about today's topic. We'll catch you again next time where we will be continuing our watch for artist rights. Cheers.